Well, thank you all. I'm delighted to, to, to be here and to have a chance to talk about a topic that may turn out to be more interesting than it sounds in some ways, uh, uh, just healthcare reform. And, and I look forward to the discussion period. And when we get there, I hope you'll introduce yourself when you make your comment or ask a question. So it was March of 2010, a little over a year, 15 months into uh, the presidency of Barack Obama, uh, that um, a joyous ceremony for the participants occurred in the East Room of the White House as uh, President Obama signed into law the Affordable Care and Patient Protection Act of 2010. That law, which is known by uh, its enemies as Obamacare, and some of its friends are calling it Obamacare too, I will probably refer to either as health reform or the Affordable Care Act. But whatever you call it, it has the makings of a landmark uh, ad adoption and turning point in a modern U.S. social provision comparable, if it, it survives and is fully implemented, to the Social Security Act, which established unemployment insurance and old age pensions in 1935, uh, and the expansions of that to cover middle class uh, retirement in the 1970s, and certainly comparable to the enactment in 1965 in the United States of Medicare to provide uh, hospital and physician coverage uh, to the retired elderly and disabled and to and Medicaid uh, as a national state partnership to subsidize health care for many groups in the ranks of the poor. As I think all of us will remember, but I'll paint the picture for you. Before the Affordable Care Act, the United States stood alone in the developed world in providing no un relatively universal guarantee <coughs> of affordable access to health care through one form of government intervention or another. Obviously, different nations do it different ways ranging from directly running health care in Britain to uh, finding ways to subsidize private insurance in places like Switzerland. But whatever the variance, uh, the United States was just not taking that route, and even a route that many developing nations are taking. It had a mixed system that was faltering badly from the 1970s. Um, since the 1970s, um, the hopes of many reformers in 1965 that Medicare would start with the elderly and then gradually be expanded down the age hierarchy, that was frustrated. So that proved not to be uh, possible. Um, Medicaid, the nationally subsidized state level program for the poor, has expanded steadily since 1965. But the expansions to more categories of poor and low-income people uh, did not keep up with the uh, diminishment of what was the major way of providing health insurance coverage to working-aged Americans and their children, and that was tax-subsidized, employer-provided private health insurance. 
That was expanding until the 70s, but at a certain point, the rising cost per person of health care in the United States made it harder and harder for all but large employers, and even some of them, to afford the cost. So in recent decades, millions of Americans have been thrown out of any kind of secure place in this mixed system, and those who retained employer-provided health care often faced higher and higher co-payments that burdened family budgets. The United States found itself in the early 21st century with the world's costliest health care, which is very good if you can afford it and you're very sick, but not so good for preventative medicine and certainly, ironically, coexisting in a society that has experienced a galloping rate of income and wealth inequality since the 1970s and along with it, the loss of basic health insurance by millions and millions of working-aged uh, people and their children. The Affordable Care Act uh, that was passed in 2010 has the potential to reverse the situation, to fill in some of the gaps and create more of a uh, uniform, not uniform, but a complete system of health care coverage in the United States. It has been called the most redistributive or an equality-enhancing reform passed in the United States in recent decades, and that's because the basic structure of the law taxes business interests and wealthier Americans to pay for subsidized health care coverage that will primarily go, if the law is fully implemented, to low-income and many lower-middle-income people who are the ones that have fallen through the cracks in the previous system. Um, if the law is fully implemented by 2020, most of it comes into effect between 2014 and 2020, more than 30 million additional people will have health insurance coverage, adding up to more than 90% of citizens and legal residents in, in the United States. Uh, so it, it, it's a big deal uh, if its promise is realized. Now, just to be clear in everybody's mind, it's a very big and complex piece of legislation, and many American politicians uh, claim they can't explain it. But I'm going to tell you the three main things it does, and all you have to do is remember those, and you know uh, more than most American citizens know about what's in the law. It creates new rules of the game for private insurance companies. Private insurance companies who are giants in America get to keep doing business and making a profit by selling policies to individuals and selling plans to businesses who provide care for their employees. But they'll have to do it more like a regulated capitalism and less like a cowboy capitalism because they won't be able to ferret out the people who might become sick and exclude them or discover people who are already covered on paper and become sick and dump them from policies. I, this may not be a conceivable thought here in Europe, but it happens all the time in the United States because in a system where everybody isn't covered 
and everything's costly, insurance companies have an incentive to use their considerable information gathering abilities to provide insurance to people who aren't going to need it. That's how you make a profit. Um, they'll have to make profits by providing insurance and improving the efficiency of care in the future. In the United States, I say it'll make them more like the National Football League and less like Major League Baseball, but that probably won't go over here. <laughs> um, the second big thing that the law does, rules of the game for insurance companies first. Second big thing that it does is it expands that Medicaid program run by the states and subsidized by the federal government for the poor so that it, it will, when fully implemented, cover up to 400% of the poverty line. That reaches well into the ranks of kind of lower middle income people uh, who might be eligible for Medicaid. Uh, if it's fully implemented, more than half of the U.S. states will have more than a quarter of their population on the Medicaid program by 2019. In addition, the law creates tax credits to enable um, people who don't have employer insurance or Medicare or Medicaid to get some help to buy a private insurance plan. That, so big subsidies to enable people to either be on public programs or to buy private insurance is the second major thing the law does. The third major thing that it does is to require all 50 states to set up what are called exchanges, which are simply marketplaces, basically websites, where you can comparison shop. If you are a business or a person who doesn't have insurance in other ways, you can find out what tax credits or subsidies you are eligible for, and you can shop for plans that will be regulated, but you can find out which one fits your needs. We have that in the state of Massachusetts. Governor Mitt Romney passed the law that created this system in the state of Massachusetts. It's called RomneyCare, uh, <laughs> and RomneyCare and Obamacare are basically the same thing. <laughs> All right, so that's what the law does. Now, I have to say it does it slowly. A few early provisions of the law have already gone into effect, like rules that keep insurance companies from throwing children who are disabled, preventing them from getting insurance, and allowing college-aged young people, like my son who graduated from Brown University a couple years ago, to stay on their parents' health insurance plan. Those are already in effect. Some increases in the subsidy for prescription drug coverage for the elderly are in effect. And there is a part of the law called the medical loss ratio, which requires insurance plans to spend 80% of the money they take in on actual health care. And if they don't, they have to give a subsidy to their uh, customers. And conveniently for President Obama, the checks start to go out this summer, complete with a letter that says you're getting this check because of the Affordable Care Act. They probably should say you're getting this check because of Obamacare, but um, I don't think they quite managed to get that into the letter. Now, the, the Affordable Care Act, I should say, also in includes various cost control incentives and ex experiments, new cost control approaches for the Medicare uh, program for the elderly, which has huge buying power, and new incentives for doctors, hospitals, and other health providers to start experimenting with ways of caring for people that emphasize prevention 
and adequate care, not simply more and more tests uh, of, of various kinds. But that's the law. Now, if we go back to that East Room of the White House in March of 2010 where all the smiling people were there while President Obama signed the law, they were all Democrats. I don't think even a single Republican wandered into the event. And that's because this law was forged in unprecedented partisan polarization and rancor. It's not that you know we haven't had partisan polarization and rancor in the United States before, but it, it used to be that liberals and conservatives didn't line up perfectly with Republicans and Democrats. Now they do. And so the law eked through the two houses of the Congress of the United States with only Democratic votes, unless you count uh, Senator Lieberman as, as a, neither a fish nor a fowl, which I guess you probably should. Um, and it didn't get any Republican votes uh, at all uh, in, in either chamber in the final passage, even though it got some at earlier stages. It was um, delayed in its enactment, and all of the complex maneuvering that goes into such an important piece of legislation was made more difficult because of the atmosphere of total all-out opposition that was adopted by the Republican Party uh, in the country and in the Congress of the United States. And in the US Congress, it's not a parliamentary system, uh, the minority party can delay things, particularly in the Senate, uh, and require a supermajority of votes for certain crucial steps. When the law was finally passed, Republican leaders redoubled their anger and opposition um, the very day that it was signed into law. And within days, dozens of state's attorney general almost all of them in states with Republican governors, filed suit in the federal courts to challenge the constitutionality of the law, uh, an attempt to take it to the one final forum of national policymaking in America where there's a shot at a Republican or conservative majority that could throw the whole law out. Now, let me just say a little bit more about the 15 months that it took to write and pass the law. I've already talked about the atmosphere of partisan opposition and obstruction, which certainly accounted for a lot of the delay. But it was also a very complex piece of legislation. It was a new series of regulations and subsidies to be added on top of a mixed public-private system that already had a lot of uh, uh, subsidies and regulations. And so there were months of bargaining with all the major players in the healthcare system. Not so much the people who would ultimately benefit from the law, the low-income working people, but the big hospital associations, the big private insurance companies, the big pharmaceutical companies. They had a huge stake uh, in the millions of additional customers and the terms on which they would be able to sell their products. Uh, many businesses that supply um, medical uh, devices. All of them were brought in for protracted negotiations in House and Senate committees to work out the different versions of the law that initially passed the two chambers. And of course, the White House negotiated with them, too. And sometimes the White House made concessions that the Democrats in the House and the Senate didn't like. So there were tensions all along among Democrats 
as they worked out their relationships. There were opponents to abortion who had to be satisfied, and ultimately many of them never were, that uh, abortion services would not be somehow indirectly subsidized by new health care for poor people. That almost upended the whole thing in the end. Uh, and there were uh, fights about whether immigrants or legal residents would be included in any of the provisions. There were uh, fights about um, whether um, the liberal preference for a public option, that is, a plan that would be like Medicare but for the non-elderly population, could be included in the options offered to citizens. The theory of public option proponents was that if you included an effective public insurance plan, it might have lower costs and better coverage than the private insurers and therefore slowly drive them out of business. Whether or not that would have proved to be true, the private insurers didn't like the idea of being driven out of business, and so they fought hard against uh, the public option, and that took a long, long time. Uh, to work out. And I'm sure I've even missed some of the things that delayed the whole thing and led to fights. There were certainly three or four months in which President Obama and leaders in the U.S. Senate tried to woo a few stray Republicans into supporting a bill that included more and more Republican ideas as it moved forward. Because it turns out that the idea of regulating insurance companies, providing tax credits to help people buy private insurance, and even requiring citizens, after all that is in place, to buy a plan, the individual mandate, the requirement that everybody participate in the system, these were ideas that had initiated with uh, the Conservative Heritage Foundation and Governor Romney. So there were some Democrats in the White House and in the Congress at the beginning of this process who thought that if they gave substance that Republicans like, that that would defuse the partisan and ideological battle. That proved to be a naive thought. But it took months for people to realize that it wasn't the substance that was really at issue. All right. So there was no Republican support and fierce obstruction throughout the process. That dragged it out. By the time it was over, most American citizens were convinced that it was big, complex, something they didn't understand, and not likely to be good. Um, because the opponents were trumpeting both provisions that were there that they could present and they could demonize, such as the requirement that everybody buy insurance, which most Americans read as, I'm going to have to go out and buy a plan now, and I can't afford it in the middle of a, a recession. And there were also lies that were let loose. During this entire period, Republican Party was radicalizing to the right. I talked about that yesterday. Uh, a combination of big money forces pushing from the top and popular uh, um, grassroots rebels pushing from below through the Tea Party uh, rebellion were uh, making it impossible for Republicans in office who might have thought of compromising to actually do so. And much of the action in the Tea Party movement did revolve around the emerging health care bill, 
which powerful economic interests disliked because it would regulate profit-making companies in new ways and perhaps trim the profits of companies that provide healthcare devices and services, and which many popular conservatives worried about because it would force them to participate in the health insurance system if they didn't want to, even if they didn't want to. But the kicker was that conservatives use scare tactics on the American elderly. And here I want everybody re to reflect on the irony. In the U.S. system of health insurance, reformers started with the elderly first in 1965. After it proved impossible to get universal health insurance, they thought, well, we'll go with the elderly because the elderly are the group that private insurance companies don't really want to insure. They, old people, I can tell you, they go to the doctor more often. And so uh, it's not a great group of people to, to make profits off of in the private insurance system. So reformers decided to go that route and do the elderly first. And the theory on the American left was always that once the elderly were fully insured, it would be so attractive, and indeed it is attractive, Americans love Medicare, that it would spread to lower age groups easily. Well, the affordable care battle turned out to be the ultimate irony there. Because the Tea Party Rebellion is a rebellion of older white people who are either on Medicare or about to be on Medicare, and they think they're fighting to defend their Medicare against cuts in costs or the inclusion of death panels that would restrict their access to all the care they want in order to pay for other people who haven't earned their own health care. So in the end, the dream of the reformers was turned entirely on its head. And the key to conservative popular opposition to Obamacare was a year and a half long campaign, a two year long campaign in the end, that paid off and for Republicans in the 2010 elections, very big, to convince older Americans that cuts in Medicare would be used to fund the new subsidies for lower income working aged people and that costs in Medicare would be controlled by the installation of death panels to decide which old people got care and to get rid of people who were too expensive. And finally, the fear that many older people have that as access to affordable care expands, they won't be able to get to see their doctor as quickly as they do now. Now, I'll just pause to say that in the research we did with Tea Partiers that included personal interviews, one of the people that we interviewed was an older woman in Virginia who started her life without a high school degree, um, was a cleaning lady, then got together with her company, her husband to form a cleaning, a house cleaning company, and then went back to school to get a practical nurse certificate. So this is a woman who, you know, I mean, she's had admirable spunk in her life and has, she now uh, makes her living by providing in-home health care to dying older people. She's a lovely person. She's warm and caring. 
she both hardworking and warm and caring, which is, I think, what you need to be to do that kind of work with people until they die, which is, you know, that's the, la that's the end of the engagement when your patient dies. So we got to the part of the interview where she brought up Obamacare. And she said, with her voice shaking, she said, my 92-year-old patient, she's so afraid of the death panel. And she knows that Obamacare is going to take away her Medicare. Well, um, I just took notes what you have to do in these interviews. But that's what it leads to on the ground. And those fears were very real out there on the part of a lot of people, and they were deliberately stoked quite effectively. So that in the 2010 election, in which four out of 10 Americans went to the polls, mainly older, more conservative white people, uh, the swing of the elderly was huge against, both, against the Democrats. And obviously, there's a hope on the part of Republican conservatives that they can repeat that, even though the electorate will be larger and younger in 2012. Now, the final thing I'll say about partisan polarization is that not only has there been an unremitting a series of legal and political attacks on this law, as it enters the first stages of a long process of implementation. So most Americans are not seeing the benefits that might be in the law. Most of them are hearing a grotesque mischaracterization of the law. And the opponents have the initiative, both in the court cases and in the legal, in the political struggles in the electoral arena. On top of that, the radicalized Republican Party, the forces around it, are, ha are taking the occasion not just to call for the repeal or the evisceration of the Affordable Care Act through the courts or through the political process, but to put on the table the previous major pieces of government involvement in the United States in providing affordable health care. The election this November in the United States will not just be about whether affordable care survives, assuming the Supreme Court doesn't do it in a month from now. It will be about whether Medicare remains a guarantee for all older and disabled Americans, the way it is now, or, and whether Medicaid remains a partnership between fed, the federal government that finances much of it and the states that implement it. The budget on which Mitt Romney is running for President of the United States on the Republican ticket was put forward by a Republican congressman in Wisconsin called Paul Ryan, who is a protege of the Americans for Prosperity advocacy group funded by the Koch brothers. That budget calls for the elimination of affordable care, for turning Medicare into a series of vouchers that older people would be given to shop for private insurance plans with the level of those vouchers set to grow at less than the cost of health care will grow in the future. That, in effect, would shift the costs on to old people and their families. And it also calls, and perhaps the most radical thing it calls for, 
is for the federal government, the national government of the United States, to dump responsibility for funding Medicaid for the poor and the disabled and leave that to state governments. In the United States, that means that it would be left in many cases to states that have already shown a lack of interest in funding education or health care for poor or middle class people and instead prefer to cut taxes for businesses uh, and redu reduce funding of all kinds uh, through state government. So, the point I want to make is that the election that's about to come up in the United States in November of 2012 has taken on a kind of health care Armageddon character. I don't think anybody would have expected that um, just a few years ago. The mood four years ago in the United States was that finally those left out of the current public and private health insurance programs were going to be included. And Many groups all across the political spectrum, the Republican candidate John McCain as well as the Democratic candidates Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were talking about how to do health reform, not whether to do it. They were talking about how to combine the control of rising costs going forward with the inclusion of those who have been excluded. And keep in mind that for people who don't have health insurance, yes, they can go to the emergency room. The costs get transferred onto the taxpayer or to other um, insured people. But many of them die sooner, and many of them go bankrupt, or their families go bankrupt, in an attempt to pay for the cost of catastrophic health care. That's the primary cause of personal bankruptcy in the United States. So that's what it was like four years ago, but four years later, with the main story being the enactment of the, the bare enactment of this reform and the radicalization of the opposition to it, particularly the ideological and political opposition, not so much the business opposition, um, the election going forward has broadened to be not just about whether this law survives to be implemented, but whether the other parts of American public social provision for health care uh, remain in place going forward. So what may happen? I'm going to tick through a few scenarios and tell you what might happen under different scenarios and then I'll stop and take discussion. About a month from now, the Supreme Court of the United States, the nine robed men and women who have uh, extraordinary ability to transform American public policy, um, will uh, render their decision on the challenge that has been brought by 26 states and various advocacy groups to all aspects of the Affordable Care Act. It's not just the requirement that individuals buy insurance after it's made affordable for all. It's also the expansion of Medicaid provision in the states that's being challenged. Um, the forces bringing these legal challenges have grown out of a 25-year-long conservative legal movement that seeks to reverse the entire uh, corpus of 20th century federal social policy in the United States. Uh, so the Supreme Court might, by a 5-4 to four margin, throw out the entire law. It could happen. In fact, I'd give it at least a 33% chance. If that happens, 
there's no question that it will have a devastating and demoralizing impact on Democrats and others, uh, including independents, who have fought for health reform. It is also like to, likely to feed ideological and political and class polarization uh, to an extraordinary degree because after the demoralization ends, which may not be until after Barack Obama is defeated in November, center-left forces in the United States will regroup probably around a demand for a much simpler system of direct social provision, which the Supreme Court will in effect be saying is okay. They'll be ruling out regulated private insurance and leaving the door open for direct taxpayer provision of health care. So that'll have an impact on what the left tries to do in the future. And it might lead to demands that the average American could understand such as Medicare for more, which is a very popular idea in the United States, as you can imagine. People like Medicare, they know it works, they'd like, like it to be available for more. Uh, so that's that. Uh, it, Republicans will be thrilled, conservatives will be thrilled, but about six months later people will say, what are your answers? to the fact that more and more people are turning up in hospital emergency rooms with no health insurance. And the people who will be saying that will not just be Democrats, they will be doctors and hospitals who are caught in the middle uh, when, that, when, when uninsured people need care. A second possibility is that the Supreme Court of the United States will rule the individual mandate provision unconstitutional, but leave all or most of the rest of the law in place. Uh, they may also say that the new rules of the game for insurance companies have to go because if you require insurance companies to take people regardless of health conditions, you have to ask everybody to buy insurance or you have adverse selection problems. That, in my view, would be a blow, but in my view, and my view is not the one you'll read in the U.S. media if this happens, it would leave the core of the Affordable Care Act in place. The, core of the Affordable Care Act is the subsidies for the expansion of health care insurance for the poor and the lower middle class. That's where the big bucks are. That's where the 30 million people have a stake. If that remains in place, you'll see a continued partisan polarization around what happens with health reform, but Democrats at least from the White House to the Congress will continue to fight to maintain the subsidized access for lower income people. Then we move on to the next big uh, um, um, possible death blow, and that's in the November 2012 election. No matter what the Supreme Court does, uphold the law, carve out part of the law, kill the law, a GOP sweep in 2012, well I guess it would be double kill, if they kill the law, but it will mean that the Affordable Care Act is, if not repealed, then defunded. And of course, having a bunch of regulations without any money to pay for the care is probably not a good situation. So I think many Democrats might even cave in and join in backing off from the Affordable Care Act. As I've already indicated, a sweep of the presidency in both houses of Congress in 2012 by the Republican Party as it is right now would almost certainly lead to the dismantling of the Medicare guarantee, 
for people who turn 55 after uh, 2019, or 65 after 2019. It would say to younger Americans, you need to pay 10 more years of taxes for grandma and grandpa to get Medicare, but then you don't get it. That won't be popular, but I think it'll happen before most people realize why they don't like it. Uh, Medicaid will almost certainly be turned into a grant and given to the states, and that grant will get lower and lower over time because the national government in the United States is, in all the Western democracies, is facing the need to pay for costly social programs and facing more resistance than most Western democracies among richer people to pay taxes. Now, even if that happens, even if either the Supreme Court or the Republican Party kill the law, a lot has already happened in many of the 50 U.S. states. The untold story of the Affordable Care Act that you don't see in any headlines, even if you read U.S. papers, is that a lot of quiet bargaining has been going on in every one of the 50 states. Each state has a lot of responsibility for deciding how to set up a health care marketplace, for working out the regulations for expanding Medicaid for the poor, and for, the, and, and for presenting rules to insurance companies and businesses for what will count as a valid plan to be offered on the state exchange. We've already done this in Massachusetts, but the other 49 states are in the middle of the process now. Those with Democratic governors and legislatures have been moving steadily forward and are ready to set the system up when they're required to do so in 2014. Those with Republican governors or Republican legislatures or both are often making a huge amount of noise in public about how they are resisting this terrible law. But in many cases, they've convened planning meetings with insurance companies, doctors, hospitals, patient advocates, and are working out the details just in case it goes forward. Because this law says to the states, if you don't set up the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, we will step in at the federal level and do it for you. So there's a sort of sort of Damocles hanging over even the most conservative states. And all but four of them have moved forward with planning, which they will be able to fall back on if the law goes forward. Even if the law doesn't go forward at the national level, many of the plans being worked out in the states among health care providers, patient advocates, state regulators, insurance companies, will turn out to be an investment that those stakeholders will want to carry through on. And states will sometimes move forward on their own. The state of Vermont, for example, has decided to set up a single-payer health care system and will probably, like Canada, and will probably carry through with that no matter what happens. Some of the western states are forming compacts and will probably go forward in one way or another even if the federal law falls or is stalled. So a lot of action in America happens at the state level. Many times we associate state level action with starving social programs. For example, throwing poor black people out of welfare, which certainly happens. But healthcare is a little bit different from welfare. You know, sick people happen in all class groups. 
Sick people need care. They have family members who love them. Uh, they appear at hospitals. Doctors and hospitals have to figure out ways to care for them. Employers worry about whether their employees have some kind of access to health care in most cases. So state-level experimentation, either through the Affordable Care Act or in its absence, could lead to more of a race to the, not to the top, but to the middle in U.S. health care. And if any of the scenarios that happen that remove the national law or stall it occur, I expect many states to continue to move forward, even under Republican governance. Now the final scenario, which obviously you will have guessed is the one I would like, is Obama's reelected. Now, even if Obama is reelected with Republicans controlling both houses of the Congress, he's not going to sign a repeal of the Affordable Care Act. And many of the subsidies that are scheduled to be delivered starting in 2014 to the state Medicaid programs and to the poor people who would buy insurance and the lower middle class people who would buy insurance are in law and cannot be stopped uh, without the cooperation of a president. Uh, they can be stalled by a president. But they can't be stopped without a new vote in the US Congress. Uh, which would probably require 60 votes in the Senate. So if Obama's reelected, this thing is going to hobble through towards survival if the Supreme Court has not already killed it. And if that happens, then with continued action in many of the states that will vary from very market-oriented models in places like Utah to single-payer, approaches in places like Vermont and will mostly be in between, this mixed system of including those who haven't been excluded and creating a new set of regulations that encourage somewhat more cost-effective medical care, that will go forward. Medicare will almost certainly be trimmed, but it will remain in place as a guarantee for all of the elderly. And Medicaid, above all, will remain in place because it will, the Affordable Care Act vastly expands Medicaid and requires all of the states to include many more of their low-income people in the system. The state of Texas, for example, will have probably more than a third of its population included in the Medicaid program because there are so many poor Latino people there who are excluded from health insurance right now. Uh, most of the tab for that will be picked up by the national government and by whoever we can persuade to pay taxes to the U.S. national government. Now I want to conclude by saying that these are two very different paths. Either the United States after 2012 is going to be haltingly, inefficiently, with a lot of conflict and grumbling, moving toward a more complete system of inclusion in affordable care for people regardless of income levels and somewhat more effective regulation of health care providers to encourage cost-effective practices. It'll take a long time, but the United States will be on a new path that is closer to the path that every other industrialized country is on one way or another. Or, it's going to go a completely different direction 
The difference won't look great at first, but it'll be huge over time. It's a turning point. It's a pivot point. Because if the forces who want to kill this law and uh, disable Medicaid and Medicare win, then we'll be moving toward a model in which private capacity to buy health insurance will be the key to whether you and your family um, can have good choices and nice care in an, inc an increasingly expensive health care system. I recently saw some of the official estimates of what it will mean if we get rid of the Affordable Care Act and we turn Medicare into vouchers to pay for private insurance. They show from a nonpartisan source that it will mean slightly lower costs for the federal government. And those, by the way, who want to take this path will use almost all the savings to pay for increased cuts in taxes for people making over $300,000 who are millionaires, billionaires, and people like me will get a few thousand dollars. Family income over 300000 a year. In the best year, that's what we do in my family. So I'm, I'm going to be a winner. But I'll be living in a society with desperate families going bankrupt, to try to get the care that's available, that's there right over the horizon, but won't be affordable for half of the population. And the kicker is that in that US healthcare system, the total cost of healthcare is scheduled to explode even further than it does now, because you will have gotten rid of all the public regulation and sources of public bargaining that can hold down the profits that are claimed by monopoly subsidies, subsidized monopolies in our healthcare system. So the United States will pay for even more per capita for healthcare, but the per capitas that will get it will be the fortunate per capitas and not the rest. If we go down that road, you can expect healthcare to be a source of bitter zero-sum conflict in the United States for decades into the future. And the outcome of that is quite uncertain, but it won't be pleasant either in US politics or for the rest of the world that depends a little bit on how our politics goes. So the stakes in this election are tremendous. They're tremendous for inequality. They're tremendous for kind of effective health care that includes people, delivers good care at an affordable price. And I want to conclude by saying that they're also critical politically. And that's why the battle is so sharp. The health care reform that passed a year ago is actually not a radical law. It's built around Republican ideas, and it was designed to protect profit in, profitable interests and their stake in the mixed US health care system. But even though it's not a radical law, and in fact, the fact that it's not radical means that a lot of liberals and leftists in the United States spend all their time complaining about what's not in the law. I mean, where I come from, we have long discussions of why this is a terrible law. That, of course, has contributed to why average Americans don't think there's anything good in this law. Because they're being told by the right it's a terrible law, and they're being told by a lot of people on the left that it's a terrible law. 
And uh, about a third of those who say they don't like Obamacare in national polls are people who don't think it's good enough, who don't think it's strong enough, who don't think it's liberal enough. So it's a moderate reform. Its supporters either don't know their stake in it yet because it won't be implemented fully until 2019, or for ideological reasons, they don't like the fact that it accommodates insurance companies. But make no mistake about it. Its opponents on the right understand the stakes perfectly. They understand that it will remake the political economy of health care going forward in ways they don't like for ideological or profit reasons. And they also understand that it will remake American democracy. Because the other big thing that's at stake here is whether middle and lower middle class and lower income Americans feel that government is on their side. Most Americans uh, in those uh, income uh, strata don't think it is. They're sort of right. It hasn't been. But if um, more and more people who are not elderly, simply, see that their family has a stake in the guaranteed rules of the game and the help for paying for insurance that this law provides, then they're likely to want to reinforce those protections and expand those forms of help, just as has happened with Social Security and Medicare for the elderly. Right-wing pundits, intellectuals, and political activists understand that stake very well. And they know that November 2012 may be their last chance to stop a political process that could begin to reinforce the ties between the American middle class and American democratic government. It'll take a while, but they see the stakes. And so for them, this is a political life and death battle as well as an economic battle, a battle to keep down taxes on the wealthy and a to remove regulations on business. Um, that's the kind of drama the United States is headed into over the next few months. About $2 billion will be spent to attack the President of the United States and the Democrats who might support the survival of this law. Uh, and I think this, along with environmental regulations, are right at the, the heart of the extraordinary clash that will occur over the coming months. The thing that is most worrisome uh, to me, speaking in my citizen capacity about that clash, is that the forces on the right who don't want these steps to be taken understand the stakes far better than the forces in the center and the left who ought to understand the stakes but often don't. I'll leave it at that. <laughs>